Good Wednesday. This is 91.3 KUAF, your public radio station. And this is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, June 23rd, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. In just a moment, what it means for COVID-19 vaccinations to be available for young children and infants. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich has that report. Later, music educator and researcher Douglas Shadle delivers insight about Arkansas native Florence Price and his work to further tell her story. First, though, COVID-19 vaccines for children as young as six months of age are now authorized for emergency use by the United States Food and Drug Administration, with recommendations from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Joel Tumlison with the Arkansas Department of Health hosted a press conference this week to discuss the pediatric vaccine rollout in Arkansas. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. FDA and CDC have given final clearance to deliver both Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccines to kids ages six months to five years old. Previously, the Moderna vaccine was authorized for people 18 years and older, the Pfizer-BioNTech shots for individuals five years and older. The 2020 census shows of nearly 3 million Arkansans, around 168,000 are kids six months to age five. Dr. Joel Tomlinson, MD, a family medicine specialist, is medical director for immunizations at the Arkansas Department of Health. He says the first wave of doses are being shipped this week and next, serving both rural and urban regions for distribution to public health and medical clinics. And the doses have started to arrive here in the state. The first wave of vaccines will number 15,000 with several thousand doses in reserve. The second wave will number around 6,000. Babies, toddlers, and youngsters are already starting to receive vaccines this week. And then we'll make further orders based on um, the requests that are coming in from the individual providers. Because at the beginning, it you know, before more information came out from FDA and CDC about the studies, it was kind of like, well, we don't even know which one providers are going to prefer uh, or ask for. Um, and that's something that the individual clinics kind of got. Well, we, you know, we're doing all Pfizer. Maybe we want to keep doing all Pfizer or no, we think Moderna looks better. And so the individual providers and it take, it's going to take them a little time to kind of, you know, now over the weekend and now they're probably just um, deciding which ones they want to go with. The Moderna COVID-19 vaccine primary series of two shots is administered one month apart to children six months to age 17. Immunocompromised youth may qualify for a third dose a month after the second dose. The Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine is administered as a primary series of three doses, the first two administered three weeks apart, followed by a third dose given at least eight weeks after the second shot, an individual six months through four years of age. But which of these lower-dose vaccines are best for preschoolers, toddlers, and babies? Talk to your child's doctor. Um, I think there's a lot of value in speaking to the provider that's taking care of your, um, your baby, your young child, and ask their opinion about it. CDC has changed guidance based on data showing vaccines don't prevent COVID-19. Rather, vaccines reduce the chance of severe illness, hospitalization and death, and virus transmission. We've got this whole section um, of people who haven't been able to get protection through vaccination so far. Uh, And so I think it's an important opportunity um, for us to protect those individuals but also help to keep these fluctuations uh, of COVID case numbers um, down. Clinical trials with this age group reveal common side effects may last a day or two. Side effects in general um, have been very similar to what was seen in older age groups of kids with those reactogenic symptoms like maybe some achiness, maybe some fatigue. All right, the really young ones, they're going to be more fatigued. Maybe they don't eat as well or something like that even less commonly fever, et cetera. Um, But those are very similar side effects and very similar kind of spread of side effects and frequencies uh, as was seen with older age groups. Additional side effects may also include headache, muscle pain, chills, joint pain, underarm, swollen lymph nodes in the same arm as the injection, nausea, vomiting, and fever. Everyone is monitored 15 minutes post-vaccination for any allergic reaction, which are rare experts say. 
For most grown-ups, vaccine side effects tend to be mild, a sore arm and fatigue, rare cases of myocarditis, inflammation of the heart muscle, and pericarditis, inflammation of tissues surrounding the heart, may occur mostly in young adult males. Adjusting vaccine intervals has been shown to help. Tomlinson says, ask your pediatrician about helping babies and toddlers manage symptoms. Warm pack, cold pack, those kind of things on a sore arm are fine to do, just any kid. Um, you know, sometimes some doctors recommend Tylenol for kids, but you want to talk to your medical provider uh, about that for your child, uh, if that's okay to do. What parents shouldn't do is it's generally not recommended to kind of preventatively give them medicine like Tylenol. Well, they might get achy, so I'll just go ahead and give them a dose of Tylenol as soon as they get the uh, vaccine. That's not usually recommended, but for some kids, it's fine in response if they do get achy, uh, sore, et cetera, um, to give them some Tylenol, but ask your doctor. COVID-19 infection tends to be more rare in children and infants, but will rise as aggregate case infections rise. It is the case that, you know, children are currently rising just like um, the rest uh, of Arkansas as a whole uh, has rising case numbers. Since an April low, new COVID-19 infections are again rising in Arkansas, fluctuating between several hundred to nearly a thousand new cases per day. Pediatric cases in Arkansas number 184,000 since a global pandemic was declared of more than 851,000 total infections in Arkansas. Another question regards if pediatric vaccines are designed for various and emerging SARS-CoV-2 strains. Tomlinson says the newly authorized childhood vaccines, similar to adult shots, are effective against Omicron variants currently circulating. Omicron subvariants is what we've got uh, in the state right now. So that data that we do see, um, as far as you know, immunogenicity in the blood levels, et cetera, um, was primarily formed against uh, and protective against uh, Omicron subvariants. Updated vaccine boosters are under development, he says. COVID-19 vaccinations can be given along with routine childhood vaccines. Providers can, can bill insurance for an administration fee, right? Uh, but not for the cost of the vaccine because it's been sent free by the federal government. But any local health unit um, around the state of Arkansas, and there's 95 of them, even if somebody doesn't have a, a primary care physician, um, they can go there and get their child vaccinated um, for free. Yale Health has published a comprehensive FAQ on pediatric COVID-19 vaccines for parents and caregivers of preschoolers, toddlers, and babies, which we've posted on our news site. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. In the lobby of the Northwest Arkansas Airport, TSA spokesperson Patricia Mancha picks up a Ziploc bag stuffed with carry-on bottles from a fold-out table. Now what we see some people do is that they'll bring a plastic container and it, this, this one for instance has toothpaste and like a perfume of some sort, but they're not 3.4 ounces. Even though they, they fit in the bag and the bag zips, it's not allowed because the containers are more than 3.4 ounces. Mancha and other TSA officials stand next to a display of items from liquor bottles to shaving cream and even a container of hummus, all of which were abandoned at airport security. You know, we talk about guns and knives and all those other things, but the most common number one item that we find in travelers' bags is water. That is the number one item, bar none. And in the summer, because it's a lot of families, we find aerosols, liquids, gels, shampoos, toothpaste, those kinds of things. And they're all mostly over 3.4 ounces. She says air travel has returned to near pre-pandemic levels across the nation. XNA was down just 2.1% in May from its 2019 numbers. And now, Mancha says, many of those eager travelers have forgotten how to travel, or at least how to travel well. So for people who are traveling, a couple of tips. Arrive early, arrive early, arrive early. We can't say it enough. Two hours before your domestic flight. And um, additionally, know what you're bringing. So we recommend that before you start packing, you empty out your carry-on luggage and know exactly what's in it. Because the number one excuse we hear from people when they bring a prohibited item is, I forgot it was in my bag. 
Alex English, public affairs manager for XNA, says the coronavirus had an unprecedented impact on the airline industry. XNA saw its traffic drop by 95% from 2019 to 2020. But English says those numbers are back on the rise, especially for leisure travel. Just looking at June thus far, uh, we are seeing an increase even from 2019, which is wonderful, unexpected. You know, we were really hoping to see these pre-pandemic numbers come back at some point in 2022. Um, so it's great to see it happening, happening, you know, six months into the year. We're hoping that that continues throughout June. June, July, historically, are always really good months for us. We have a lot of leisure travel, a lot of vacationers coming through. Um, so we absolutely expect quite a spike in our passenger volume for these next um, couple of summer months. Part of that increase, she says, is due to loosening COVID-19 restrictions and widespread availability of vaccines. XNA and all U.S. airports no longer require passengers to wear a mask indoors. And on June 12th, the Biden administration dropped the proof of mandatory negative COVID-19 tests for anyone entering the U.S. Still, the increase in demand for travel and leisure comes at a time of record high fuel prices, a pilot shortage, and an economic recession. Here's Nick Chabaria, spokesperson for AAA. Uh, you know, gas prices in general up about 50 percent or so from uh, this time last year. Uh, and of course, we're largely seeing a lot of upward pressure on, on oil products in general, including gasoline, uh, diesel fuel, and uh jet fuel as well. So uh, when you're looking at airline costs, uh, the, uh, the average uh, lowest airfare is about 6% more compared to last year. Uh, you know, what we're telling drivers for the, for the remainder of summer, we certainly expect uh, gas prices to remain elevated this season um, and certainly fluctuate uh, like they have been for the last few months. Chiberia says that uptick is driven by the large number of summer travelers this year compared to the past two years, as well as economic pressures from the ongoing war in Ukraine. It's not necessarily just, you know, one one thing that has to change. It's, it's a number of things uh, that would have to happen for prices to come back down. So, you know, we're, we're kind of in, you know, uncharted territory, at least in, in recent history of uh, you know, where we are with oil and gas. So, uh, you know, it's, it's tough to say exactly, you know, where prices will land. Um, but in general, you know, drivers should expect prices, uh, you know, to remain, of course, elevated from last year. In Arkansas, the average price for a gallon of regular unleaded gas is around $4.50. And nationally, that average is closer to $5. Chiberia says the elevated prices, though, don't seem to be deterring people from taking their summer vacations. This past Memorial Day, AAA reported about 39 million Americans traveled for the holiday, while 35 million of those took road trips. Uh, and folks are certainly making up for lost time uh, with trips this year. Now, it'll be interesting to see as, as the, the summer travel season goes on and we look toward some of those major holidays like uh, Fourth of July and, and Labor Day, uh, if, you know, looking ahead to some of those uh, travel projections to see if as the summer goes on, these higher prices may start having an impact on travelers. But right now, uh, at least to start the summer travel season, uh, we're not seeing these higher prices deter folks from taking trips. So if you are planning to take a summer vacation, especially a road trip, Chiberia says there are a few tips to keep in mind. Certainly expect increased traffic on the roadways. Make sure, of course, you're leaving plenty of time to get where you're going safely. You know, we're talking about gas prices. We know that most vehicles, uh, most fuel-driven vehicles, uh, their miles per gallon, their fuel economy will top out around 50 to 60 miles per hour, which, of course, is, you know, most, most state highway speed. So uh, even just driving the speed limit will help uh, make sure you're getting the most from your fuel economy in your vehicle while gas prices are elevated. And Alex English says airline passengers should be aware that tickets are more expensive right now. So if you have a specific trip in mind, you'll need to book early. Um, six to eight weeks is kind of what um, historically I've always said. So maybe add a month or a couple weeks onto that um, to book out. Um, but if you can be flexible and really kind of see some of those deals in the sense of, you know, flying on a Wednesday versus a Thursday, um, you can you can definitely save some money there. Um, and then, you know, look out for some of our deals that we do have here with our airlines. I was able to um, jump on a deal a couple months ago through um, one of our low-cost carriers, Breeze Airways, um, where they were doing a promotion for $40 
$5 round trip tickets. And that was fabulous. So look out for those on our social media. Um, try to book out as much as you can. And then one last tip I give people is Google Flights. You can also track prices. I do that all the time. Um, it's really wonderful. And it'll send you an email when there's a dip in price. Um, so you can kind of jump on those uh, lower, lower costs of tickets as well. And Patricia Mancha with TSA says the best thing that a traveler can do is just to be prepared. So I would recommend that knowledge is power. And at the end of the day, the airlines, the airports, TSA officers, we're all working together to get you and your family to your final destination. So during this time, arrive early and pack your patience. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. Marty Stewart and his fabulous superlatives with special guest Junior Brown are coming to the auditorium in Eureka Springs October 7th. Reserve tickets go on sale at 10 a.m. Friday, this Friday, June 24th, at the AUD.org or tickets.thunderticks.com. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Support for KUAF comes from Malco Theaters, offering reserved seating at the Rogers Cinema Grill, Springdale Cinema Grill, and Razorback Cinema Grill and IMAX Theater in Fayetteville. Showtimes, tickets, and more information available at malco.com or the Malco app. This is Ozarks at Large. The world continues to be introduced to Florence Price and her work. The Little Rock-born composer has been the subject of several concerts, recordings, and writings in the past few years. Urging Kong, professor of violin at the University of Arkansas, recorded Price's violin concerts and helped spur further interest with concerts and multi-day programs dedicated to her music. John Jetter, the conductor and music director of the Fort Smith Symphony, has conducted both the Fort Smith Symphony and the Vienna Radio Symphony for recordings of Florence Price music. We've talked to both Urging and John on this program about Florence Price. This past spring semester, the University of Arkansas invited Douglas Shadle, an associate professor of musicology at Vanderbilt University, to deliver a talk on campus about his research into Price, her life, and her music. While he was in Fayetteville, he came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to talk with us. Shadle says he grew up in Little Rock and played the viola in public schools. And it was during those formative years that he first became familiar with Florence Price. My orchestra director in junior high school Uh, a man named Jim Hatch, who sadly just passed away last December, uh, made the orchestra class into a very uh, academic-oriented activity in addition to playing music. And so every semester, uh, he created a midterm and a final exam uh, where we would have to go to the library or use other sources to find answers to these questions. And he always had a couple of questions on there about Arkansas musicians. And so he would say, you know, which of these composers is from Arkansas or which of these uh, instrumentalists or vocalists are from Arkansas? And William Grant Still and Florence Price were on the list. And so that was information when I was 12 or 13 years old that I never in in the life of me thought I would need to return to. Um, But as I moved ahead in my academic career, when I was in graduate school, I was looking mostly at symphonic music by American composers in the 1800s. So what was happening when Brahms was active, what was going on in the United States. And I learned that a lot of American composers were ignored by their local orchestras. And that became the foundation for essentially the history of American orchestras were very European-centered enterprises. And uh, in about 2008, uh, the great Price scholar Ray Linda Brown released an edition of two of her symphonies. And when I read the introduction to that score, I realized, oh, Price is really part of this same larger story of local orchestras not appreciating the people around them. And I was very intrigued by uh, not only my connection to her being a Little Rock native like I am, but also the fact that I had already been thinking about these stories of how people's music is ignored or, you know, what makes something famous. And so I was asking questions through that lens and realized that Price was part of the story I had been telling. And so it was really a revelation to learn about that dimension of her work. So, I mean, we can imagine 
we can understand how Florence Price was ignored. She was a woman composer. She was a woman of color. But you're telling me that local composers across the country were kind of ignored by their local symphonies? Yes, that's correct. And and I, I have mountains of evidence at this point of uh, orchestras like the New York Philharmonic performing uh, a piece by, say, one composer is George Frederick Bristow, named after George Friedrich Handel. Um, and he was, for a while, the concertmaster of the New York Philharmonic, played in the violin section for many, many years. The one conductor uh, excitedly conducted one of his symphonies. Audience loved it, but was never programmed again because critics were very skeptical mm. of the talent of composers not educated in Europe. And so this sort of European inferiority complex really drove uh, public perception. And I think just like with Florence Price, even when, so the, let me just roll back a little sure. bit. Even when audiences liked the music was not enough to convince conductors and managers to keep programming it. And you come to the realization that there are other political social factors involved in what gets on a concert program. It's not just about the quality of the piece. It's not just about what people like. And so uh, figuring out those patterns of what, what the, the motivations are for putting one thing on a, on a program versus another uh, certainly a part of this story. And I think the, the most mind-boggling thing is that even when it gets rounds of applause, even when it gets encore after encore, doesn't seem to shift the tide in anyone's favor. Yeah, because when I listened, and I, I was introduced to Florence Price music late, you know, relatively late in my life, and when I listened to it, it's so, I don't know if this is the right word, but approachable. It's so wonderful. It has all these elements of America yeah. in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I... I like to describe Price's music, at least the better known works, because maybe we'll have a chance in a minute to talk about yeah. the, the variety of her styles. It's, it's music that people who love the orchestra or who love classical music, maybe it's a string quartet or the piano quintet that they're listening to, they can immediately fall in love with the music because the style in general is something that they'll recognize. But then if they listen more closely, you know, more intently and kind of get into it, allow themselves to get into the music, they'll realize, oh, there's something I haven't heard before, and I like this. And trying to kind of place it within, uh, you know, what composer have you heard that this sounds like becomes increasingly difficult because you realize, oh, this is Florence Price. Right. And so that's one of the things that, that I've heard year after year after year from people who listen to her music is that, oh, you know, it sounds familiar, but then it doesn't sound familiar. And I think that's just the, the beauty of it is that she really created a distinct voice using tools that were widely used and widely available, but she really made them her own, and that's that's the real beauty of it. You mentioned there's a variety of styles that she composed with. Yeah, definitely. So some of her music actually is, is I like to call it uh, quite note crunchy, and that it's a little bit dissonant, um, and she was intentionally experimenting with more maybe modern elements to kind of explore and play with that soundscape. And she was adept at, uh, I think, every style. Some of her songs, to me, sound uh, heavily influenced by, say, Debussy's Impressionism and kind of have a very floaty character. Um, we get into some of the technical details, whole tone scales, that kind of thing, uh, that she was borrowing from other early 20th century composers conceptually. And she uses those to paint really evocative portraits or to go with the text of a particular song for, for dramatic effect. And she was just a true master of musical materials and making it fit uh, the mood that she wanted to evoke. Um, and so certainly very strategic about the soundscapes that she would put together into a, a full piece. Now, I know while you're in Fayetteville, you delivered a, a, an address about her. What brought you specifically to Fayetteville? Yeah, so this week... Um, I'm diving headlong into co-authoring a new biography of Price with my main collaborator who's at the University of Oxford. She's a musicologist and pianist named Samantha Ege, and she's very well known for uh, giving lecture recitals on Price and her context and has released two discs and has another one coming out soon on the Chicago Black Renaissance that features music by Price and other women uh, composer pianists of that era. And so this is my first time back in Fayetteville since 2018, and I'm able to dive into 
uh, some of the material that was found just over uh, 10 years ago in this house in Illinois. I've been through about half of that material. And the other half was really unavailable for a long, long time because it was, it was mildewy and moldy and they had to get professional remediation. Um, and so I've been going through that material now and have, have found some really incredible stuff. Uh, but you mentioned my lecture. And what one kind of track that I've been following is questions about Price and her family's engagement with the legal system. Mm. And it's for me, it's one thing to say that, oh, Price was a woman of color living in the Jim Crow South, participating in the Great Migration, uh, moving to Chicago and finding a different kind of cultural environment there that was far more uh, sustaining for her professionally and, and, and socially. But trying to get beyond those broad strokes to add some nuance and texture to what it was like to be a woman of color living in uh, these, these very difficult legal circumstances that got, it only got worse uh, over her lifetime has been a real pressing question for me, particularly because her first husband, Thomas Price, was a lawyer. He was a civil rights lawyer, in fact. And so that got me thinking, you know, what was his legal practice? What, what, was, what kind of stuff was he involved in? And so the more searching that I did in uh, digital newspaper archives for Thomas Price, her father, uh, James Price, and her mother, Florence Irene Price, the more I saw that actually her mother and father were very active in the legal system and even challenged things like the separate rail car bill. So we know, for instance, the Supreme Court case, Plessy v. Ferguson. So every state in the South passed one of those bills. And in 1891, uh, there was actually a Senator Tillman from Fayetteville who introduced uh, the rail car bill mm -hmm. in Arkansas. And there was a gentleman from Pine Bluff, African-American lawyer named J. Gray Lucas, who gave a, a deeply impassioned speech about why this bill was wrong, uh, why it was going to cause a lot of damage to the black community. Uh, and, and sadly enough, it's, it, it really rings true today in terms of certain civil liberties that uh, civil liberties violations that African-Americans still face. Uh, but in any case, Price's father uh, led a community organizing event, you might call it, when this bill was under consideration that J. Gray Lucas uh, attended as well. And so Price's father was deeply involved in the, the community side of political and legal activism uh, and played, played no small part there. Well, a couple years later, J. Gray Lucas married Price's mother's sister, Okay, became her uncle. They moved to Chicago and helped her uh, develop her life in Chicago when they moved about 30 years later. And so it's, it's been very fascinating for me to see how this well-to-do middle-class family. That's one of the things we know very well about Price, uh, that he was a dentist. But he uh, and her mother were very active in uh, the political and legal environment of Little Rock. And I found a great uh, newspaper, a series of newspaper stories about how Price's mother, who was fairer-skinned, uh, sat in the white car in 1895 and was kicked out and then was put into the, as they called it, the colored car. And she found the accommodations to be inferior and thought that it violated this concept of separate but equal and sued uh, the, the rail car company, uh, took it to court, sued for $5,000. A significant sum. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. A, yeah, a very significant amount. Because, I mean, you know, from, from their perspective, this was a, you know, a civil rights violation. Right. And, you know, similar to uh, equal employment and this sort of Title IX, the sort of thing that, you know, we hear about all the time. And uh, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to, to dig into the lower court records to see what actually happened. And the newspapers didn't report what happened. But uh, I know from legal historians that this was a very common strategy to have uh, the woman in a partnership sue because, as the historians have shown, this pitted two deeply held Southern values of uh, white supremacy on the one hand, which is animating the law, but also women's respectability. Uh -huh. And so to have the woman sue for inferior treatment really tried to 
pitch a wedge between these two values to say, well, are you going to come down on the white supremacy side or are you actually going to uphold this notion of women's respectability? And so my, my lecture was kind of digging into all of these issues to figure out, you know, what, what actually is life on the ground like for these individuals making their way through these systems that are putting up roadblocks uh, at every corner? Um, to get beyond just this notion of, you know, we know Jim Crow laws exist. We know that these are difficult things. But, you know, to look at just at one individual and her family and see how these laws uh, shaped their lives in very real ways is what my lecture was about. And I think is a new way of looking at classical music because, you know, you don't you don't think about composers as being real people. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, right. I, I, you know it sounds strange to say, but I think it's true, you know, that they sort of live in this rarefied world of the notes and musical expression. But Especially those composers who died before we were born. Right. Yeah, yeah. no, exactly, yeah. exactly. I mean, you know, when, when you can meet someone and shake their hand, that's a different thing. But, yeah, the farther, the farther removed we are from them, uh, the more difficult it is. And so I've, I've as part of my biographical work, I'm really trying to bring in these multi-textured narratives that, that give life to to someone like Price. What I don't envy for people who have your jobs with biography is you can't make suppositions, right? I would love to know exactly how some of these things influence Florence Price and her music, but mm -hmm. you can't make suppositions, really. You have to try to find history. That's right. That's right. And and the, the, in, in musicology, my field, there's... Um, you know, we always wring our hands about how much does someone's life get put into musical expression in the first place. And my my own uh, advisor, uh, incidentally, Mark Evan Bonds, has a new book called The Beethoven Syndrome, mm. where it was really uh, shortly after Beethoven's death that critics started to read biography into musical works. And so, for instance, if you know Beethoven's late music, it's really you know, it's very difficult and and was, was really kind of earth-shattering for listeners back then. Well, as soon as Beethoven died and news about his, uh, the extent of his deafness came out, uh, people started to, to back-read all of his late music as being this expression of his inner life and this sort of thing. Well, then it took off after that where the idea that someone's life goes directly into a piece of music took off, and it never really existed prior to that. And, and so today, it's like once you open that Pandora's box, you can't put it back right. in. And so the tendency is to say, oh, well, on this day or this month, uh, this composer was experiencing X, Y, Z, and then it goes right into the piece. And you know, sometimes it makes a really a seductive story. Uh, sometimes it makes no sense. And so you're absolutely right that for the musicologist to tease out you know, what, what is it and what is it not is a, is a fun and but difficult question. So, Mr. Hatch, that's mm -hmm. who sent you to the library on this. All right. Did you ever ask him how he became introduced to Florence Price or William Grant still? I didn't, unfortunately. And, you know, I wish I had. We, we lost touch over the last few years. I sent him a copy of my first book, uh, which, which he enjoyed. This was in about 2016. Um, and, and, you know, I wish I had. He, he passed away suddenly. There, was, there were complications in a surgery that was routine, mm. and it was a real devastating loss for his family uh, and, of course, his large community of supporter and thousands of students who, who you know, knew him. Um, but, you know, I have to say that, that something I've learned this week that I knew was sort of swirling around in my mind but didn't have the evidence for is that uh, back in the mid-'80s, the Northwest Arkansas Symphony, I think in about 1986. Oh, but, so that's when it was led by Carlton Woods, I think. Yes, yeah. that, that's precisely yeah. it. Yeah, so I, I, there's a program in Dr. Barbara Garvey-Jackson's files that are in the library. That it's a program from 1986 where they perform Price's First Symphony. And this was the first time it had been performed since 1933, to our knowledge. And I was looking at the uh, musical roster, and there's a violist named Alan Clack. Uh, who for many years was and perhaps still is a member of the Arkansas Symphony um, and, and is a Fayetteville resident, uh, classical music lover. And, you know, he's, he's someone I know as a violist. I know Alan from years and years ago uh, in Little Rock. And I, I, there may be other individuals who are part of that concert. Mm -hmm. And I think Fayetteville really was at that time the vanguard 
of price research and advocacy through Dr. Jackson's efforts. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, people talk about, hey, this, this Arkansas composer is here. Now, William Grant still, unlike Price, never really fell out of the performance canon, if you will. I mean, he's you know, hardly a canonic composer, so to speak. But, um, but there was vinyl in the 70s yeah, and correct, 80s. Correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There was never a broken performance tradition of his orchestral music, you might say. And so I think... Um, for Jim to know still would be kind of a natural thing. But um, Price, when you sort of put the pieces together, that the the vanguard, as I said, of advocacy was here, I think makes a real difference in what educators would be able to teach their students. Well, yeah, the reason I asked if you knew how uh, your teacher was introduced, Mr. Hatch, is that there's this direct lineage from your assignment when you were 12 or 13 to your deep dive now, and the the fact that we, along with colleagues and, and, and your co-writer and your co-collaborator, but that we know so much more now. I mean, you can make a direct line. That's that's kind of what educators' roles are. It it really is. And you know, I'm I'm just welling up a little bit to hear you say that because you know, Mr. Hatch, um I mean, he touched thousands of lives and not all of them I mean, the vast majority did not go into music. Uh, many did. And it would be very difficult for me to overstate his influence on my pursuits. And again, planting a seed that, that lay dormant for 20 years, 10 years probably. Um, I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but then, but then, t- for it to sprout in a way that that I never would have anticipated when I was even in college, say it was it was really kind of midway through graduate school that I started for these pieces to kind of come together. But yes, absolutely. I mean, and and I think it speaks to uh, the importance of arts education in general that the arts open up doors and windows and avenues that we just don't know where they'll take us. And there's something beautiful about that and meaningful that gives richness to our lives. And, you know, mathematics in its sort of abstract beauty does that too, but in a very different way. But we can recognize the value to all of these different modes of learning and thinking. And I, I'm just moved by your observation that, that it's education working because I, I never really thought about it in those terms, but I, it, I feel that deeply inside. Douglas Shadle is an associate professor of musicology at Vanderbilt University, and he was at the University of Arkansas this past semester to continue research into the life of Florence Price, and during his visit, he delivered a talk about his work. And it was during that visit that he came to the Carver Center for Public Radio to talk to us. This is KUAF. I'm Pete Hartman. You know, we all make mistakes. I sure know I have my fair share. And if I've ever interviewed you, you are well aware. From forgetting how to pronounce your name... Casey Brandsetter, Branch Chief of Interpretation for Buffalo National River. Today I'm joined over the phone by Cassie... Mm-mm. Today I'm joined over the phone by Cassie... To forgetting your name altogether. Mitchell's outreach. We're also speaking with Danielle Dotson, Marketing Director with Adventure Subaru. Uh, Christine, I see you again. Danielle. <laughs> Redo. To, well, we're not going to go over all of my mistakes. My point is this. At KUAF, we sometimes make the mistake... But we will own up to it, and more importantly, we'll make the changes so that KUAF is a public radio station that you can be proud to support. And for us to make those changes, it does take your support. We're raising funds all through June, and we need your help to keep KUAF a reliable and accountable public service. You can make your gift right now at supportkuaf.com, and thanks. This is Ozarks at Large with me inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studios. Lee Wood, our general manager. Happy first full day of summer. Oh, my gosh. You must be so happy. I love it's it's right now seemingly like there's nothing but summer for the as far as you can see. It's like the yeah, the best day. Well, happy first day of summer to you, Kyle. All right. We're going to make somebody else very happy. It's the first day of summer. That's true. Yes, we are. We're going to give away tickets to Fits in the Tantrums co-headlining with St. Paul and the Broken Bones. That show is tomorrow night, Thursday, uh, at the Amp. Mm-hmm. And our winner is 
Linda Seymour Davis. All right. Way to go, Linda. Congratulations, Linda. I'll get in touch with you and your tickets will be at Will Call. And thanks so much. It'll be a great show. Yes. All right. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. Happy summer, Kyle. Thank you. You too. Music of Fitz and the Tantrums just ahead on our show. New art at the Fayetteville Public Library that's designed with a special nod to the library's youngest patrons. The new mural was created by an artist who became interested in art at a young age. That new art and the story delivered by a new voice for our show just ahead. The next hearing into the January 6th violence at the United States Capitol is scheduled to take place in the U.S. Capitol tomorrow afternoon. KUAF will provide NPR's live coverage beginning at 2 tomorrow afternoon. And you can always listen to us no matter where you are with the KUAF app by using the streams at KUAF.com or by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF. Walmart Amp proudly presents a fireworks spectacular on Monday, July 4th. This family-friendly experience features patriotic music by the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas with a grand finale fireworks display. Gates open at 6 p.m., concert at 7.30, fireworks at 9.15, amptickets.com for more information. This is Ozarks at Large. A new work of art inside the Fayetteville Public Library is likely to delight visitors of all ages, but especially younger ones. Earlier this month, Kristen Kite, our Ozarks at Large intern this summer, sat down with the artist Brandon Bullitt. Their conversation took place on June 14th the day Brandon put the finishing touches on the mural. It all coincides with the library's annual summer reading club that's underway now and will last through the end of July. Kristen asked Brandon Bullitt about the inspiration for his mural. I'm painting Mr. Mousehouse. That's a program started by the library, kind of run by Stacy Mitchell. It's a letter-writing program for the kids to interact with a fictional uh, mouse that doesn't really visually appear anywhere. I tried to match the colors of the house with the color palette of the surrounding interior design of the uh, preschool area. And they've got a lot of uh, beautiful primary and secondary colors that are illuminated through glass. So what Brandon has described is a wonderland. If you look at it, he just finished it today. If you go into the preschool section of the Fayetteville Public Library, it is immediately to your right on a column. It stands two by five. It's perfect height for children, and it is. It is just a wonderful little magic piece. So tell me what it means, Brandon, to be an artist to you. I think there are many different types of being an artist. It's documenting life as it occurs and how that person interprets how they engage with the world, what they see and what they believe. Then there's the commercial side where you have a client and they have an image that they want to bring to life and uh, what they want specifically in there. So for me, I act, I guess, more of as a painting graphic designer. With this project specifically, they wanted a house where it was whimsical kind of spoke to the mood of a happy little home in the Ozarks. Well, this little whimsical home that you made, it made me feel at home. It made me think, well, where are my roots from? Where are you from originally? Uh, I was born in Escondido, California, but uh, we moved to Joplin, Missouri when I was super young. So I was raised in southwest Missouri up until I went to college in southwest Missouri in Springfield and continued to develop there and run around until I moved to Colorado for a little while. But then after about a year or so, I moved to Fayetteville because I missed the uh, Ozark weather. What inspired you to do art? 
Uh, I got a lot of positive attention for it when I was uh, in kindergarten. Like, a lot of positive attention. People really liked a clown drawing I did. Also, every year for my birthday and Christmas, it was, you know, art supplies. I kind of just used art as a way of engaging with people through school. If I had someone I either had a crush on or the opposite, if someone was kind of giving me a hard time, a drawing. You said crushes in high school. I can imagine where the art went in that direction. But as for, you said people that gave you a hard time. Now, were you just making these drawings to kind of filter as like a journal or would you actually give these pieces? It depended on what was happening. I would hear with one ear and then draw and take notes on the side. Eventually, the kid that was instead of drawing, kicking my you know, desk or taking time to find uh, something because I was a pretty easy target. I had like a very fluffy uh, bowl cut, some plastic glasses that were generally broken on one side or another that I would have to fix myself or, you know, and uh, kind of a round belly, skinny armed kid. (laughs) So, but I would be sitting there drawing some insane looking monster in a situation doing an active event and eventually their attention would go to that, and they would either just give me a little more respect for that, they would come up with an idea of something they wanted, and uh, to pass the time I would draw it and give it to them, and it was easier to turn an enemy into a friend. You talked about kind of monsters and clowns, and now we turn to a whimsical house for Mr. Mouse. It's drawn for children, primarily preschool level, but of all ages, too, to interact. How do you feel knowing that you have drawn this for all kids? How do you feel knowing that's going to be there forever? Uh, I feel good about it. You know, uh, Stacy gave me the uh, parameters and told me what was going to be up, and this is the second draft that we worked on together. Now, Brandon, I know you have a website. Where can people find your work? Uh, the best up-to-date is just my Instagram handle, at BrandonBulletArt on Instagram. And then uh, I've also been working out of a tattoo studio, Stigma Inc., and they're located on Greg, same building as Onyx. If you guys want to check out Brandon's work, do check out his Instagram. And if you want to learn more about the summer reading program for children, check out the Fayetteville Public Library website at faylib.org. Kristen Kite, our Ozarks at Large intern for the summer, talked with Brandon Bullitt about his work, a house for Mr. Mouse. Their conversation in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio earlier this month. The mailbox for Mr. Mouse's house has been installed, and young readers can place real letters in that mailbox. Word is Mr. Mouse does his best to write back. The Fayetteville Public Library's Summer Reading Club is going now, and it will last through July 31st. More information about the Summer Reading Club at faylib.org. And the Stacy that Brandon Bullitt referred to in his conversation with Kristen is Stacy Mitchell, the library's youth and teen librarian. She was a big help for us when we were putting this story together, and we hear she's a big help to Mr. Mouse, too. This is Ozarks at Large. Support for KUAF comes from Westwood Gardens, featuring locally grown plants offering a variety of annuals, perennials, herbs, and more selected to perform well in Arkansas's summer heat. WestwoodGardens.com for more information. This is Ozarks at Large. Caregivers for people with Alzheimer's disease and other types of dementia can benefit from a new grant program led by the Arkansas Department of Human Services. DHS officials announced the Dementia Respite Care Pilot Program at a news conference this week. David Cook is with the Arkansas chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, which is partnering with DHS and other groups on the initiative. He says they plan to use data from the grant program to help better target services to where they're most needed. We'll be able to see exactly where these services are desperately needed, Uh, also do some caregiver analysis to understand what their real needs are, uh, but also be able to target specifically rural parts of the state. Limited funding up to this point has, uh, again, decreased the capacity of where these funds could actually go. Uh, A part of this pilot program um, includes targeted funding to reach our rural parts of our state who are medically underserved. The program will provide up to two annual grants of $500 to go toward a third-party caregiver to come into the home or for the patient to stay briefly at an adult daycare or short-term stay facility. The program, which was approved by the state legislature, currently has about $200,000 in funding. Republican State Representative Julie Mayberry says she hopes to see the program expanded in the future. 
I'd like to get it to the point where the caregiver can take that time out, that there are more resources so that the caregiver can have time to stop and smell the roses because I feel that that does a lot to that person's mental health. And if they are in a better frame of mind, they will be able to take care of that loved one even more. The program has no income limitations and no age limitations. Officials say applications will soon be available on the websites of DHS, Alzheimer's Arkansas, and the state chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, Opera in the Ozarks is coming back for another season. That new season begins Friday. We talked with an artist, a stage director, and the general director of Opera in the Ozarks this week about what to expect over the course of the next month. We'll hear from them on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF, your public radio station. On the next Resilient Black Women. Joy and Denisha welcome their very first guest to the podcast, Dustin McGowan, to speak on the history and context of the longest-running African-American holiday, and now a national holiday, Juneteenth. And so you had a lot of these systems and, and rules and laws that really stifled the freedom in the South. And so you and so you have people moving further west, you have people moving to the north to try to get out of out from under those things. But we see that even in Juneteenth, that this is actually just a transition from one struggle to the next. Listen to Resilient Black Women for free at KUAF.com and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Kane Hill. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Daniel Carruth, and Kristen Kite. Thanks to Lee Wood, KUAF's general manager, for coming to the show today to give away the tickets to Fitz and the Tantrums and St. Paul and the Broken Bones, that show at the Walmart Amp. Additional content you heard today provided by the news team at KUAR Public Radio in Little Rock. I'm Kyle Kellams. Thanks so much for your attention today. We return tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. By the way, NPR's live coverage of the January 6th hearings continues tomorrow, scheduled to start at 2. Have a safe rest of your Wednesday. We'll talk again soon. And we're ending with music composed by Arkansas native Florence Price. This is from a recording that we mentioned earlier this hour. It's Florence Price Symphony No. 1, as performed by the Fort Smith Symphony, conducted by John Jetter.